65. Wonderful reminder in this psalm in verse 3. And I thought it would be appropriate just to read this psalm and to kind of um, get our concentration as we gather around the Word of God. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. And we're reminded of that as we gather around uh, the table of the Lord. We'll be uh, considering that in our catechism lesson tonight. So, Psalm 65, and then um, concentrating on. 1 Corinthians and the words of our catechism, but here, this psalm as we read it. Psalm 65. For the director of music, a psalm of David, a song. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Savior. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. When morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Amen. Then go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, verse 16. First Corinthians 10, verse 16. The Apostle speaking here of the sacrament of communion. First Corinthians 10, verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. And let's go to our catechism lesson as well. Two Lord's Days this evening, 29 and 30. So, we've got several answers that we can read together. Two Lord's Days, 29 
and 30. Both of these dealing with the sacrament of communion. Let's read the answers together with one voice. Are the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply God's sign and assurance, so too the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the actual body of Christ, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? Paul uses the words of participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. The next Lord's Day. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that our sins have been completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself finished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his very body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who are to come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ 
and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they say and do that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's anger upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Some of you may know I dabble quite a bit in uh, political theory and political reading. I also have a, a special affinity for the highest court of our land. And uh, the, the man who initially turned me on to just the idea of, of reading something like a, a Supreme Court decision was uh, Antonin Scalia and the way that he thought through uh, constitutional law really grips my mind and I love, still love reading many of the things uh, that he wrote while he was on this earth. Reading a biography now on, on Clarence Thomas, both of these men, uh, Roman Catholic, was listening to a, a lecture the other day given at Notre Dame by William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States and it was a uh, fantastic, uh, absolutely fantastic lecture on religious liberty, and was thinking about that a little bit, and certainly thinking about that as I was pondering all of uh, this content in our catechism. And with the process of secularization in our society, the, the importance of religious liberty, that question over the next uh, few decades, is obviously going to loom quite large in the lives of Christians, and whether or not uh, the words that are found in, in our constitutional documents that not only will government not be able to establish any religion, but that uh, men shall be free unto the free exercise thereof, right? And, and we, we hear more and more faith and religion, Christian religion, pushed to the margins. Well, you can have that faith that you confess in the pew on Sunday. Go to whatever church you want. You can hold it in your heart and your mind, but keep it out of the public square. Well, as Christians, to freely exercise our religion is for the lordship of Christ to seep into every area of our lives. The glory of God, the law of God, all that he has said, touches everything um, in, in his, the cosmos that he has created. And so we're thinking about this process, of, uh, I was thinking about this process of secularization and, and thinking of how many uh, Roman Catholic scholars, Roman Catholic judges, I've read over the years and just appreciated so much their work. And you see the many ways in which we're, we're being driven together in a, in a public sense, in a, in outside of the walls of the church, driven together, uh, working for things like uh, the right to life and uh, the, the, the fight against abortion, right? evangelical Biblical Christians and conservative Roman Catholics working together 
quite a bit for that, working quite a bit together uh, for religious liberty. And I think that we need to, to be honest about that and say that uh, in many ways they, they can be our, our partners and our friends in many ways. We can be thankful for the tradition that, and the history that we share together uh, with the creeds and the doctrine, uh, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union of Christ. Christ is both true God and, and true man. And, and yet we do also need to remember some of the differences. And a reminder of that this morning in adult Sunday school, Reverend Madney was, was talking about, and really since the, the, the Reformation, uh, the Reformed Church, the confessional Protestant Church, and the Roman Catholic Church have really uh, become even further separated from one another in many ways. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church now says that uh, Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and so there, there, and that, and a number of other things that have happened since the Reformation that teach us uh, that there are very important distinctives and differences in these true two traditions. John Owen said that uh, the the Roman Catholic Church was no safe guide to salvation. It's kind of an interesting way of of putting it. The reformers constantly had to remind themselves that there were an abundance of, uh, of Christians in that communion, in the Roman Catholic Church. That God, had the way that, that history had unfolded, the way it had gone, there were, certainly were true believers within her. Uh, nevertheless, because of the doctrine, because of the, the gospel that they were preaching, which in the eyes of the reformers, of course, a false gospel, not teaching justification by faith, that it was no safe guide to salvation. Tonight, we consider uh, really another sharp edge of the differences, which is the Eucharist and what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Let's let's consider this together in the context of uh, the New Testament scriptures, in the context of Christ's uh, once-for-all Sacrifice. Obviously, these are hugely important things, and we glory in these things, don't we? Psalm 65, when we were overwhelmed by our sins, what did God do? He forgave them. He forgave us our sins. At the foundation, the Christian gospel is about our God who forgives and cleanses sin. He washes them away. He separates them as far as east is from the west. So a little summary point of just what we believe when we are coming to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that our redemption was accomplished once for all in history. We believe that that redemption that was accomplished once for all is applied to the hearts of believers when by the power of God they are granted faith, granted faith in Jesus Christ. That once for all sacrifice is applied to the hearts of believers And then, by the Holy Spirit, they are made more and more to trust in its efficacy. That's the Christian life. God is bringing us more and more to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to look to it, to love our Lord because of it, and to allow that to work forth into our lives into greater and greater degrees of good works. There are really two clear differences that I want to focus on tonight between the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. The first, of course, is regarding the nature of the elements, the bread and the wine. You've probably heard the word transubstantiation. 
The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the nature of the bread and wine changes from bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ, properly speaking. This means that, properly speaking, it is not true to say that the bread and wine, or the the wafer and the wine that they use, are bread and wine. The nature itself has been changed. So there are reasons, several reasons I want to talk about why we reject this assertion taken from the doctrine in our, in our catechism. First, a sacrament is a sign that points beyond itself. There is a sign and a thing signified, the reality. It points to the reality. If a sacrament becomes actually, in matter of fact, the thing that it points to, it ceases to be a sign. If I borrow money from someone and uh, I give them a token that represents my promise to pay them back, it's a sign that points to my repayment. That is not itself the repayment. And, of course, the sacrament, we talk about it as a token and a pledge. It points to something beyond Itself. Now, because of the power of the Spirit and because of the union between the, the sign and the thing signified, as we read tonight, we still call it the body and the blood of Christ. But what we are saying is not the same as what a Roman Catholic would say. So that's the first thing. A sacrament in our doctrine is a sign that points beyond itself. Secondly, is the question of remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. The Roman Catholic Church says that Christ, fully in his human nature, in his human nature, is made present in the Mass. But we are told to practice communion in remembrance of Jesus. We can only remember something if it is not present. I correct uh, my, my lovely girls at home uh, who say sometimes when I'm in their midst, they, they'll say, Daddy, I miss you. And I'll tell them, uh, I'm right here. You can't miss me because I'm right here. Now, sometimes uh, my wife is saying that to me, and she's giving me a good lesson that she wants me to be a little bit more present uh, in that moment, right? But you can, only rem- you can only miss something that's not there. You can only remember something that is not there. So to do it in remembrance of Jesus, we're reminded that where is he? He is in heaven. His human nature is in heaven. Now in his divine nature, of course, he's everywhere. He's true God. But he's true God and true man. He continues to be man, and he, in his human nature, is present in heaven. Is that a mystery? Yes, there is some mystery to that. It's a glorious mystery, but nevertheless, uh, we affirm We affirm it uh, on the basis of God's word and the reason that he gives to us. Third, uh, the Roman Catholic teaching turns the idea of a sacrament on its head. Why does God give us the water of baptism? Why does God give us the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper? It's very simple. Just as you see the water, just as you feel the water, Just as you grab the bread, touch the bread, taste it. Just as you hold the cup and you taste it. That is how sure you can be that your sins are forgiven in Christ. In other words, God is saying, your faith is weak. 
You need to trust, we, we are, as human beings, we want to trust our senses, right? We want to believe in the things that we see. And then that's, that's why our faith is tried each and every day, because God calls us to believe in that which we don't see. And so to accommodate to our weakness, God says, I'm going to give you these signs, these tokens, these pledges to build up your faith. So in other words, he's saying, trust your senses when the sacraments are in operation. Trust them. You see the water. Trust the water that you see. You're holding the bread and the cup. You taste it. Trust your senses. But if the nature of the thing has changed, if it's no longer bread and cup, and that's truly not what it is anymore, our senses are tricking us. Our senses trick us, and then we're no longer to trust them. You see, it turns the idea of a sacrament on its head. And so it doesn't aid in our assurance if the teaching is it's not actually everything that it seems to be to us. It turns the nature of a sacrament on its head. And then finally, fourthly, it makes the human nature of Christ not human. Human natures are limited spatially. We can't be in two or three places at once as much as we may wish we could be, you know, to have our productivity skyrocket, right? You can't be in two places at once. Identical twins maybe have this ability to trick people into thinking they're in two places at once, but we, no one has that ability. Our catechism reminds us that Jesus Christ must be a man. He has to be a man to pay for our sins. If he is not a true man, he cannot be our savior. Human nature has sinned. Human nature must pay for sin. But if in his humanity he becomes present where all of the places are, uh, of the mass are taking place at once, if he can be in thousands of places at once, then uh, is he a true man? Does he have a true human nature? If his human nature can be uh, in unlimited places. Also, they would have to affirm that even at the Last Supper, when Jesus was there in the room, that his human nature was also communicated into the bread and the cup at the Last Supper. So that's the first main problem. Transubstantiation, when we weigh it against Scripture, when we weigh it against the teaching of the sacraments, uh, we see that it is a doctrine that is found wanting. The second main problem that the Reformed have with uh, the doctrine of the Eucharist is that of Christ's sacrifice being represented over and over in the Mass daily. Now we have to use the language that they use, that they say it is, and uh, sometimes... The Reformed and Protestants have not been honest enough and gracious enough in the way that they talk about this. They say it's a representation, And so we, we should use the language that they want to use. Nevertheless, this in the end becomes a bit of a distinction without a difference. Right? They say it's not a re-sacrifice, it's a re-presentation. But here are the things that they still nevertheless say about what the Mass is. They say that it is a sacrifice. And when they say it is a sacrifice, they call it a, quote, proper sacrifice, which is to say the Mass itself is a propitiatory sacrifice. What does a propitiation mean? It's something that turns away 
the wrath of God. It's, it's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Now, they do say that the sacrifice of the Eucharist is not a sacrifice on its own. Right? It doesn't stand on its own, but it's part of the work of Christ on the cross. It shares in that work. In that sense, they say this is not a re-sacrifice, but a representation of the sacrifice. Nevertheless, in the Council of Trent, they do say in the Mass, Christ is sacrificed. John Owen was in dialogue with a Roman Catholic through letter correspondence on this exact issue. And in response to Owen, the man he was writing letters with says that Jesus Christ was often offered. He's offered daily, as this man says. This, of course, flies in the face of the whole point of the book of Hebrews. What's the point of the book of Hebrews? That in the Old Covenant, there were repeated sacrifices in the temple that happened over and over and over again, and they were pointing forward to what? To the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross who would offer himself once. One time in history in order to make forgiveness for sins. Hebrews 10 verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being Sanctified. Even in this short passage, we see a refutation of what we have already encountered. The image of Jesus Christ ascending into heaven and sitting down and showing that his work is totally complete and finished, that there remains no need for any other sacrifice. And even though the doctrine of the Eucharist speaks of a representation, it nevertheless speaks of it being. A sacrifice. Again, this is an assault on our assurance. It doesn't help or aid our assurance. It's an assault upon our assurance. One of the issues in the book of Hebrews is that under the old covenant, one of the difficulties for the people of God was their consciences. They were trusting in the gracious God, the gracious God who forgives. They knew that there was something else that true believers knew that there were other things that were going to come, to come along. God was going to reveal more. Nevertheless, there was a problem with their consciences because they knew that a sacrifice would be given for their sin. And because of that, there would be a cleansing that happened. And nevertheless, they would sin again. They needed another sacrifice, right? Now, of course, in God's sovereignty... Uh, They were looking through all of those signs to the true Savior and being justified by faith. But there was a tension in the old covenant worship of these ongoing sacrifices. The blessing of new covenant worship is that our consciences are cleansed unto the truth, unto the reality that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified on the hill called Golgotha. One time he offered himself and he presented his work to the Father in heaven. He ascended in heaven. He presented his work. The Father was pleased. Because of that, all of our sins can be forgiven, past, present, and future, when we are granted faith in Christ. But in the Eucharist, one is forced to ask, which sacrifice do I need more? To trust in the work at Calvary 
or to trust in his daily offering being offered to me in the Mass. This leads us to another criticism of this doctrine because they speak of the Mass as being non-bloody. It's a non-bloody sacrifice. So they want to say that it's a sacrifice that in some sense is propitiatory and proper, but they also want to say that it's non-bloody. What do we read about, non, uh, about blood and sacrifices and sin in Scripture? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. They also say that Jesus doesn't suffer daily in the Mass. Without suffering, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, without suffering, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we read in Hebrews chapter 9, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, For as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. Sacrifices that take away sins entail suffering. Because of those reasons, uh, we reject uh, their doctrine and we affirm that when Paul says that we participate in the body of and the blood of Christ, that the bread and the wine are tokens and pledges. They are signs that point beyond themselves. But when we eat and when we drink in faith, understanding that the human nature of Christ is in heaven, he is absent from us now in that sense, but he is present to us now by the power of Christ, by the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Lifts, us, lifts, lifts up our hearts to heaven. Where Christ is, that our souls may feed upon him, that we may truly be nourished. We may truly be nourished with Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the only food, the only nourishment for our souls. We glory in all of these things. Lord's Day 30 also then, just in closing, in closing also speaks of the issue of partaking worthily. Worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper. Now, what we have to affirm at the outset is what many of our forms say when we come to the table. None of us deserve to be at the table. Right? None of us merit uh, coming to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ it, because it is all a gift of God's grace. We are seated at the table in God's house purely by His grace. None of us deserve to be there. None of us deserve to be in the family of God. We remember that when we think about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, we are called to examine ourselves. We are called to look at our own lives. We are to realize that there is a duty involved in coming to the table. Paul says that we are to discern the body of Christ. What does it mean to discern the body? It means first to know what Christ's life and death were all about. It means to know what he did when he came to earth to live and to die for us. It means to see the value of his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. It means to understand that by faith we are forgiven. This is all an evaluation of whether or not we have saving knowledge of Christ. Very simply... Do you understand the message of salvation? Do you understand the message of salvation? Do you have a saving knowledge of Christ? So you ponder your saving knowledge. Discerning the body. Do I know why he came? Do I know why he needed to come? 
Do I know why he needed to come for me? Secondly, we evaluate ourselves not only in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of faith. Faith. And that's when you move from knowledge to faith, what our catechism does so beautifully is that not just do I understand this really nice picture of Jesus Christ and what he does out here for sinners, but do I understand that that work that Jesus Christ has done, that that cleanses my sin, that that has intruded into my heart and to my life, And I trust that his blood has covered me. And I trust that his blood has cleansed me. And so we evaluate ourselves in terms of faith. Because without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 2 Corinthians 13, the apostle says, Examine yourselves, brothers, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? It's a question of, do I understand that Christ dwells in my heart through faith, as Ephesians 3, 17 says? Not just that I affirm all of this out here, but that I trust in his sacrifice for me. So you evaluate yourself on knowledge, you evaluate yourself on faith, And then lastly, you examine yourselves with regard to the sincerity of your heart. The sincerity of your heart, which is seen chiefly in our obedience, in the way that we live our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Celebrate the feast of God. With what? Sincerity and truth. If you find, if you look to your life and you say, okay, I have the saving knowledge, I know the sweep of scripture, I know the, the importance of Jesus Christ coming. I look to my faith, I, I do trust in Christ as my Savior, I do trust that his sacrifice is it's for me, it's not, just for, it's not just for some people, it's for me, I trust in his blood, I trust in his work, and now I look to my life, and what do I find? <laughs> I find a roller coaster of obedience, I find all kinds of ups and downs, I find all kinds of things that discourage my heart, I find all kinds of things that I am disappointed in and I wish that I were better at. If you find that you are weak and imperfect, you have found exactly what you need to come to the Lord's table. If you find that you are still struggling with sin, you have found exactly what you need to come to the table. But if you find that you are completely bereft of sorrow over sin. There's no sorrow over sin. If uh, there's no knowledge, faith, or repentance, if you show no remorse for what you do and no desire to lead a godly life, then perhaps you have found someone uh, who ought not to come to the table. But if you find that you're weak, 
You find that you're imperfect. You find that you're disappointed in yourself and having not been able to serve God the way that you know that he deserves. You found exactly what you need. Really, you may think about it this way. Anyone who desires to examine themselves rightly before they come to the table has already shown the ingredients of a sincere heart. If you look inside of yourself and, and you're, you're laboring to make sure, that, okay, I understand, I trust in Jesus, I want to serve him, I want to glorify him, you're already showing the ingredients of a sincere heart. Anyone who desires to please God, to honor him, to glorify him, has the seed of a genuine faith and a desire for obedience. Christ did not come for the healthy, he came for the sick. God desires that the weak would come to him. Right? To examining yourself for the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not about trying to find a, a righteousness within yourself that can merit anything before God. It's looking for sincerity, desire to glorify and to serve him, for God desires that the weak would come to him. Right? There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. God has never turned away God has never turned away a sinner genuinely seeking forgiveness in him. Isn't that amazing? God has never turned away once a sinner genuinely seeking forgiveness in him. He never turns us away for being weak. It is only the weak that our God saves. Amen. Let's pray. So we praise you, our great God and Savior. And we thank you for these marvelous truths and we glory in them. And uh, we, we thank you for your, your saving grace that has found us and uh, brought us home to you. We praise you and pray, pray that you would strengthen us for this week ahead. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.